Hey everybody, this is Volts for November 29th, 2021, the 24-7 Megapod. I'm your host, David Roberts. I've been writing about 24-7 carbon-free energy. Uh, originally intended to write a post on it, but it turned into three posts and a full month. So I thought it would be nice to uh, string those three posts together and the podcasts I did for them into one megapod so you could listen to them all in one place. And that's what this is. So enjoy. When a company or city claims to be 100% powered by clean energy, what it typically means is that it has tallied up its electricity consumption purchased an equal amount of carbon-free energy, or CFE, and called it even. That's fine as far as it goes. But now, the next horizon of voluntary climate action has come into view. A brave few companies and cities aspire not just to offset their consumption with CFE on a yearly basis, but to match their consumption with CFE production every hour of every day all year long, running on clean energy 24-7. That is the new hotness. The list of entities in the U.S. that have committed to 24-7 CFE is short. Peninsula Clean Energy, a community choice aggregator in California, has committed to it by 2025. Google, Microsoft, and the Sacramento Municipal Utility District have targeted 2030 the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and, somewhat anomalously for this California-heavy list, the city of Des Moines, Iowa, have targeted 2035. Ithaca, New York, is rumored to be contemplating something similar. That's it for now, but the idea is catching on quickly and drawing tons of attention. In September, a broad international group of more than 40 energy suppliers, buyers, and governments launched the 24-7 Carbon-Free Energy Compact, a set of principles and actions that stakeholders across the energy ecosystem can commit to in order to drive systemic change. Joe Biden's original American Jobs Plan contained a promise to pursue, quote, 24-7 clean power for federal buildings, unquote. That language has fallen out of the Build Back Better budget reconciliation bill in Congress but rumor has it that Biden may issue an executive order on the subject soon. There are already efforts afoot to standardize hourly tracking of clean energy and build it into markets, as well as numerous active discussions about how to update markets and policy to accommodate it. Anyway, it's getting to be a big deal. It's time to wrap our heads around what is going on. Happily, it turns out to be a fascinating story with all kinds of twists and turns. Let's dive in. Headline 1. A History of Powered by Clean Energy To understand what 100% powered by clean electricity has meant to date, you have to understand at least the basics of Renewable Energy Certificates, or RECs. Originally, RECs were a mechanism that utilities used to comply with statutory requirements for deploying renewable energy. A wind or solar farm that generated one megawatt of renewable energy also generated one REC, which was submitted to regulators as proof of compliance. Then, voluntary REC markets came along. In a voluntary REC market, a power generator can unbundle its REC from the megawatt of energy it generates and sell it into a market where it can be traded numerous times before being retired or taken off the market. For accounting purposes, whoever retires the REC gets to claim the environmental benefit. Corporate, institutional, and government entities could purchase, trade, and retire RECs. The idea was that the ability to sell RECs as a second income stream would induce developers to build more clean energy projects. And it worked for a while as long as solar and wind came at a cost premium and RECs were relatively expensive. But then, wind and solar started getting super cheap. The cost of an unbundled REC went from $5 in 2008 to under $1 in 2010, where it has stayed since. 
voluntary rec markets became quite robust, but it became clear at a certain point that all these unbundled recs were not actually driving many new renewable energy projects. A 2013 study found that, quote, the investment decisions of wind power project developers in the United States are unlikely to have been altered by the voluntary rec market, end quote. To their credit, corporate and industrial buyers took notice. In 2014, Walmart stated that it would no longer offset its energy use with unbundled RECs, and many other buyers followed suit. The market began to trend toward more long-term contracts, power purchase agreements, or PPAs, through which a buyer pledged to buy both the energy and the RECs, i.e. bundled RECs, from a prospective project for 10 to 25 years. These PPAs gave developers more confidence and has prompted a surge of building of clean energy projects. In 2020 alone, corporate and industrial buyers in the U.S. procured 10.6 gigawatts of renewable energy, which represents a third of all renewable capacity added in the country. Voluntary procurement by the CNI sector has become a major driver of the energy transition. There are still plenty of entities buying cheap unbundled RECs and claiming carbon neutrality, but the leaders in the space are generally bundling them under PPAs. But there is still a problem with RECs, even the good ones. Headline 2, The Problem with RECs When a CNI buyer purchases a REC, whether bundled or unbundled, it knows how much renewable energy was generated, i.e. a megawatt, but not when it was generated. But it turns out that when it comes to energy sources that come and go with the weather, like wind and solar, the timing of generation matters quite a bit. If participants in voluntary rec markets continue to buy the cheapest wind and solar recs, sooner or later the grid will become imbalanced. During periods of high sunlight or heavy wind, there will be too much renewable energy, pushing prices down. But in periods when the sun is down or the wind flags, there isn't enough renewable energy, so demand must be covered by expensive natural gas peaker plants. Prices and supplies swing wildly. Markets don't like it, and more wind and solar will only exacerbate the effect. What's needed is carbon-free energy that's available when sun and wind fall short. A megawatt of additional carbon-free energy is much more valuable during those times than it is during times of high solar and wind output. The timing matters. But right now, RECs contain no information about the time of generation. It is impossible for buyers to know if any particular generator covered or will cover any particular hour of consumption. Buyers have no way of buying carbon-free energy specifically in the hours that they most need it. Think of a monthly REC as an extremely low-resolution image of renewable energy production. In temporal terms, it's one giant month-sized pixel. CNI buyers purchase these low-resolution images, overlay them on their consumption, and hope for the best. But when you look at a higher resolution image of renewable energy production, one with our sized pixels, you see that it does not overlap perfectly with consumption, not even close. Headline 3. The mismatch between 100% carbon-free energy and 100% carbon-free energy 24-7. Google broke ground in this area with a 2018 white paper called The Internet is 24-7, Carbon-Free Energy Should Be Too. It has produced some visuals that allow us to clearly see the mismatch between renewable energy supply and demand. Google has dozens of data centers. It tracks energy supply and demand by the hour and gives each data center a CFE score, a carbon-free energy score. How many hours of its operation were powered in real time by CFE? A quick word about how the CFE score is calculated. For each hour, the baseline CFE score is the grid mix. So if the data center is drawing on a grid with 20% CFE, wind, solar, nuclear, whatever, and 80% fossil, it begins with a CFE score of 20% for that hour. Google then adds any energy being produced during that hour by projects with which it has signed PPAs on the same grid. 
That can push the CFE score up, theoretically, to 100%. Anyway, with that in mind, let's check out some data centers and their CFE scores. The first is from the company's data center in Iowa. Google buys more than enough wind power in Iowa to offset the data center's consumption in volumetric terms. But is the data center actually running on wind power from hour to hour? Not entirely. To be precise, 74% of its demand was matched on an hourly basis by CFE, i.e. it has a CFE score of 74. Below is a stripe representing the data center's consumption for every hour of the year. Each column is a day, there are 365. Each row is an hour, beginning with midnight at the top. The shade of the square represents the amount of CFE powering it during that hour. And listeners, here you will need to go to the blog post to see the visual, which is actually quite crucial to this post, so I encourage you to do so. In most hours, there's enough Google-contracted wind power coming onto the Iowa grid to cover the data center's consumption. However, for a period in late summer, wind speeds decline, wind power drops, and fossil fuels step in to provide the power. How can Google get this data center's CFE score up to 100%? The first thing to note is that it cannot simply buy more Iowa wind power. It is already getting all it can out of wind. It doesn't matter how many wind farms it has contracted with if the wind isn't blowing in a given hour. In Iowa, Google is going to have to procure something else, something that can fill in the gaps left by wind. One way to do that is by buying both wind and solar power, which tend to have complementary profiles. Below is a similar stripe representing Google's Netherlands data center. On July 1st, a bunch of new Google-contracted solar came online. From that point on, the middle of the stripe, daytime, is much greener. Solar fills in some of the gaps left by wind. Unfortunately, solar leaves gaps too. It doesn't matter how many solar farms you've contracted with if the sun is behind clouds or, you know, down. In the Netherlands, Google is going to have to procure something else something to fill the remaining gaps left by solar and wind. In some sense, these are nice problems to have. Here's the Taiwan data center. Oof, what little CFE there is on Taiwan's grid comes from nuclear power plants, and when they go down, it is all fossils. Google has given all of its data centers CFE scores, which is no mean feat, since in many cases this data was not easily available. Here they are in one image. These graphics help illustrate Google's 24-7 CFE challenge, which isn't just one challenge, but a slightly different challenge in each of the dozens of grids in which it operates. At each of those data centers, except maybe Oklahoma, which is already at 96, and Oregon, which is already at 89%, it needs to buy a bunch more wind and solar but it will also need to buy something else, something to fill the gaps. What might that something be? Headline four, the technology needed to fill the gaps. Part of the great promise of the movement to 24-7 CFE is that it will draw attention and investment to all those things needed to balance out cheap wind and solar. For big consumers like Google, there are, roughly speaking, three ways to smooth out the fluctuations in wind and solar and maintain a steady hourly supply of CFE. They are, from least to most expensive, demand management, energy storage, and clean firm generation. So first, demand management. Demand management begins with load reduction through efficiency. Google has aggressively pursued energy efficiency at its data centers with dramatic results. Quote, Compared with five years ago, the company said in 2018, we now deliver more than 3.5 times as much computing power with the same amount of electrical power. End quote. After load reduction comes load shaping, managing daily operations to push more consumption into high CFE hours, and load shifting, which refers to moving consumption around in smaller increments responding to hour-to-hour -hour fluctuations in CFE. 
Quote, we got our start by looking out over a 24-hour period, getting a forecast of what the grid CFE would be, and then shifting compute loads back in time during that period. Things like feature upgrades or backups. Michael Terrell, Google's Director of Energy and the author of the 2018 white paper, told me. Now what we started doing is shifting loads spatially from one data center to the other. Theoretically, you could envision compute following the sun around the globe if you took it all the way. End quote. Adapting demand to supply rather than vice versa, load reduction, shaping, and shifting is almost always the least expensive way of accommodating variable renewables. There is still a ton of innovation to come in this area. It's a space where we haven't even really gotten started, Terrell says. Second is energy storage. Storage, currently dominated by lithium-ion batteries, is great for smoothing out the day-to-day supply curve, taking some excess wind from windy hours and saving it for lulls, or saving excess solar from the daytime for the nighttime. However, while batteries are a good balance for renewables' variability, their hour-to-hour fluctuations, they aren't as good for balancing its intermittency, the occasional days, weeks, months, even years of unusually low wind or sunlight. Germans call a period like this a Dunkelflaut. It is extremely difficult and expensive to cover one with only batteries to supplement wind and solar. The third option is clean firm generation, i.e. energy sources that can be turned on at will and run for days or weeks on end, but emit no carbon. The two big conventional examples here are hydro and nuclear power, but there isn't a ton of new hydro available to most buyers, and new nuclear, at least in the absence of next-gen nuclear tech, is prohibitively expensive. There's also geothermal, which is getting a lot of interest in active development. The first bit of clean firm that Google plans to acquire is geothermal from a company called Fervo. For now, affordable geothermal is only available in certain areas of the country, but technological advances are close to changing that. Other clean firm sources include long-duration energy storage, which is technically a form of storage, but competes directly with other clean firm sources. Advanced nuclear, which has been just over the horizon for years, but might finally be getting close. Biomass, some versions of which may qualify as zero carbon, and natural gas power plants with carbon capture and sequestration, which are currently both non-existent and wildly expensive, but may, with the help of the boosted 45Q tax credit in the Build Back Better bill, become more cost-effective soon. One reason energy nerds are excited about the 24-7 trend is that it's going to pull forward in time a bunch of questions and investment decisions that we're going to face grids trying to reach 100% CFE anyway. Perhaps the biggest and most important of those questions is, how far will we be able to get with demand response and batteries? How much clean, firm generation will we need in the end? With a bunch of companies and cities competing to reach 24-7 CFE, we'll find out sooner than we otherwise would have, and the clean firm sources that are necessary will receive much-needed investment, bringing their costs down and benefiting other decarbonizing grids across the world. Headline 5, the market products needed to fill the gaps. If companies and cities want to fill in their hourly gaps, they need access to time-stamped CFE. As previously mentioned, current RECs only come in low-resolution form, in chunks of a month or a year. They aren't precise enough to target specific hours. The answer, simple to propose but devilishly difficult in practice, is to supplement and eventually replace current RECs with some kind of hourly RECs. As it happens, there's a bunch of work going on to figure out how that would work. If you're interested, the place to begin exploring is this white paper from IMRETS, a nonprofit organization devoted to the tracking and trading of renewable energy. Working with Google, IMRETS is pioneering and testing a product called Time-Based Energy Attribute Certificates, or TEKS, which are effectively hourly RECs. One monthly rec would be replaced, 
for a 31-day month with 744 teaks, each representing one hour of the month, each encoding exactly how much CFE was generated in that hour. For now, in the Midwest, teaks are being offered alongside RECs, and Google is buying and retiring them. But there's a long way to go between that test and a fundamental restructuring of REC markets. Says Google, quote, For teaks to be adopted worldwide, we'll need to standardize the certificates and integrate them into existing tracking systems and carbon accounting programs. Also, grid operators will need to enable customers to access and understand their hourly energy data. That's why we support policies that mandate publication of grid data, and why we serve on the advisory board for EnergyTag, an independent nonprofit pioneering a global tracking standard for TEKS. End quote. This is a big task, which amounts to rebuilding a rather large plane, rec markets, while it is in flight but the information necessary to do it exists. That's phase one of IMRET's plan, make hourly recs available and reliable. Phase two is a little trickier. Headline six, measuring the carbon impact of renewable energy procurement is vexed but vital. Phase two is to integrate carbon information and accounting into TEKS to reveal precisely how much carbon was avoided by the clean energy generated. This information can help buyers prioritize the teaks likely to displace the most emissions. It can also allow companies to more precisely track their scope to emissions. For those who don't remember this bit of jargon, scope one emissions are from direct on-site combustion of fossil fuels, as in, say, vehicles, Scope 2 are the off-site emissions represented by on-site consumption of electricity. Scope 3, a much broader category, are all the emissions caused by a company's supply chain and products. Anyway, to date, companies have been able to offset their Scope 2 emissions with REC purchases, but as we've seen, RECs are almost always mismatched to actual hourly consumption and a company that relies on RECs to offset its Scope 2 emissions is likely exaggerating its actual reductions. Hourly carbon emissions data attached to TEKS would allow a company to precisely measure the amount of emissions it reduces through its contracts, and thus precisely offset its Scope 2 emissions. There are technical issues around how to properly measure avoided carbon, but we're going to pass those by for now. There's a ton of work going on in this area for companies trying to provide reliable hourly emissions data. See Singularity Energy, Electricity Map, formerly Tomorrow, WattTime, and Kavala. In partnership with several energy companies, Kavala recently released a white paper proposing a methodology for measuring carbon intensity on the electric grid. In addition, there are organizations working to develop standards and common definitions, including the aforementioned Energy Tag, an independent nonprofit industry led initiative to define and build a market for hourly electricity certificates that enables energy users to verify the source of their electricity and carbon emissions in real time. And LF Energy, which is the energy division of the Linux Foundation. The ultimate vision. Electricity markets in which each hour of CFE is available as a discrete product with reliable carbon data attached to it. Within such markets, any buyer, a building, a data center, a city, would be able to know precisely what its real-world carbon footprint is and exactly how much progress it has made in reducing it. Headline 7. Is 24-7 CFE the next step in carbon commitments or... A distraction. Let's be honest. Governments ought to be doing this through policy. The federal government should pass a clean energy standard, or say a SEP, targeting a net zero electricity sector by 2035, like Biden wanted. On some level, all of this voluntary stuff is a suboptimal response to government failure. Nonetheless, the CNI sector deserves credit for pushing things forward even when governments won't. It is responsible for enormous amounts of new renewable energy on the grid over the last decade. 
Now it is trying to focus attention on filling the gaps left by wind and solar to achieve full, around-the-clock, clean energy. This is a challenge every decarbonizing grid will face eventually. Google et al. are effectively volunteering to explore and chart it in advance. Nevertheless, there are real questions about whether this is the best climate strategy. A company procuring CFE to raise its own 24-7 CFE score is not necessarily going to procure in a way that maximizes carbon reductions. Those two goals rarely overlap perfectly. Critics of the 24-7 trend say that companies ought to be focused on reducing the most carbon possible as quickly as possible, and that hourly teaks are in some ways a return to unbundled wrecks with all the same risks that accounting gimmicks will substitute for real emission reductions. These are complicated disputes that are worth spending some time on. Today, I want to talk about a big debate around 24-7 CFE regarding whether it's the right goal for companies and cities to adopt at all. Exploring that debate will help us get our heads around what 24-7 CFE can and can't accomplish. But first, a quick refresher. Here's the idea. Right now, in addition to generating electricity, renewable energy projects generate renewable energy certificates or RECs, one for each megawatt hour. They can sell the RECs to any entity looking to buy renewable energy. For instance, a company or city that wants to go 100% renewable can simply buy enough RECs to cover its yearly electricity consumption. At least two changes would be required to make a 24-7 CFE strategy possible. First, renewable energy would expand to carbon-free energy. Any generator putting out electrons without carbon emissions, including nuclear or natural gas, with carbon capture and sequestration, would qualify. And second, RECs, rather than coming in month- or year-long chunks, would be issued in time-stamped increments of an hour, so that buyers could target procurement at the particular hours of the day when they need CFE. Eventually, each hourly REC would contain information about avoided carbon emissions, so buyers could tally up the carbon impact of their purchases. That is the vision. In this post, I'm going to discuss an objection to 24-7 CFE and some counterarguments to the objection. Then in my next post, yes, this is turning into 24-7 month, I'll look at some new modeling of the impact of 24-7 procurement and try to draw some conclusions. We're going to have a good time. Headline 1. Measuring carbon is mostly doable. An intrinsic part of the 24-7 vision is that each hourly rec will be tagged with a certain amount of avoided carbon. This will allow buyers to make procurement decisions that take emissions into account. There are some issues and controversies around calculating avoided carbon, though they're not the ones I'm going to focus on today. Some carbon counters have proprietary formulas, like watt time, and some are trying to develop open source methods, like energy tag. The numbers they produce are not radically different, but they do differ. They vary in how they calculate the marginal, i.e. most expensive, energy source on a grid at a given moment. The marginal generator is the one that will spin down to make room when the CFE is produced. They differ in how to draw the geographic boundary of analysis, which can affect results, and other stuff like that. To go from the generation data to the local carbon emission data is not trivial, says Toby Ferenzi, founder of Energy Tag, because you're trying to model the flow of electrons. Until you can track a single electron through the system, there will always be different types of approximations. There's also the question of how distributed energy resources are treated. Right now, grid operators tend to have little visibility into or control over DERs. Energy generated locally on a distribution grid is viewed by grid operators as reduced demand on that grid. Bringing DERs more fully into the picture as deployable resources is an important long-term challenge. There are data issues, too. 
If you look at Electricity Map, which seeks to track the carbon intensity of every grid in the world at every hour, you will see that there are still big holes, areas where utilities have not made the data public. New regulations and laws requiring grid operators to make these numbers available is another priority. Anyway, I'm not going to dig into these technical issues. I have faith that if an hourly rec market gets going, these kind of questions will be ironed out. The general sentiment seems to be that it is more important to have a common set of numbers than it is for those numbers to be accurate down to the decimal. Instead, let's turn to the more fundamental challenge to 24-7 CFE. Headline 2, 24-7 versus Emissionality. Unlike air pollution, which concentrates where it is emitted, carbon dioxide diffuses completely into the atmosphere. It doesn't matter where it is emitted. All tons are the same from a climate perspective. One company or city's emissions are no different than any others. There's nothing about your hourly emissions that make them special. It follows that if you're a company that wants to reduce carbon emissions, the thing to do is buy clean energy on the dirtiest grid possible, wherever it will displace the most carbon-intensive energy and thus prevent the most emissions. If you take an international perspective, that will probably be somewhere overseas, in Asia or Africa. If you take a U.S. perspective, it will be in states like West Virginia, Wyoming, and Kentucky. The best way to do this is with bundled wrecks. Wrecks that are purchased together with the energy that produce them through long-term power purchase agreements, or PPAs. Because that's the approach most likely to actually lead to new clean energy projects being built. But most organizations are not in a position to sign long-term PPAs, says Ferenzi. All they know is, I want to buy good electricity, not bad electricity. For them, unbundled RECs are the only option. Either way, if you want to reduce emissions with your CFE procurement, it must be guided not only by what's most likely to lead to new projects, i.e. additionality, but also by what will reduce the most emissions, i.e. emissionality. This word, emissionality, is a terrible neologism, the latest of many out of the energy world, but I'm living with it because it's a helpful way to refer to the quantification of carbon emission reductions. Now, take note. Optimizing your clean energy procurement for emissionality is different from optimizing it for your own 24-7 consumption. The former strategy maximizes emission reductions. The latter does not. In some cases, optimizing around your own consumption could fail to reduce emissions or even increase net emissions, despite increasing your share of CFE. One simple example. Imagine one company has signed a bunch of solar PPAs and thus has more hourly recs during the day than it needs to cover its consumption, but it has a shortage at night. Another company has signed a bunch of wind PPAs and thus has excess hourly recs at night, but a shortage during the day. The companies can simply trade hourly recs. Each has increased its CFE score, but no new clean energy was built and no carbon emissions were reduced. Another example is how companies choose to deploy batteries. Mark Dyson, an energy analyst at RMI, explained it to me this way. Quote, a battery optimized for 24-7 would charge when a buyer has procured excess renewable energy in a particular hour. But in most grids for the foreseeable future, a fossil generator will usually be the marginal unit at the system level. So charging storage increases carbon emissions in that hour. Discharging the battery later would offset generation from another fossil generator and reduce emissions, but there's no guarantee the difference in efficiency of those power plants is greater than the round-trip efficiency penalty of using the battery, and thus total emissions can actually increase. End quote. In other words, optimizing battery deployment to cover 24-7 consumption will be different from, and in some cases contrary to, deploying them to optimize emission reductions. Nobody has yet modeled exactly how much these two strategies would diverge, or how frequent cases like the ones above might be, but no one disputes that they would diverge. 
A strategy built around emissionality would, by definition, reduce more emissions than any alternative strategy built around any other goal. And this is the critique of 24-7 CFE. Emissions are emissions. Reducing any one company's emissions is of no particular benefit to the climate. Just reduce emissions wherever you can. That's the climate imperative. This same debate expresses itself in several different forms. One way to think of the distinction is between attributional and consequential carbon accounting. Critics say attributional accounting, purchasing energy with a REC attached, is fine for statutory or voluntary clean energy requirements, but when it comes to reducing carbon emissions, companies should use consequential accounting, i.e. purchasing energy that has the most short-term emission reduction impact. The same debate crops up again between hourly average and marginal carbon measurement. One can either assess a unit of CFE based on its effect on the hourly average emissions on the grid in the hour it is produced, or based on the carbon intensity of the marginal generator it displaces. Hourly averages are, for a variety of reasons, easier to determine and can be used to boost your own CFE score, but a marginal approach measuring nodal marginal emissions will tell you which energy purchases will maximize short-term emission reductions. All these debates are forms of the same question. Why not focus on carbon emissions? As Henry Richardson of Watt Time put it to me, measure emissions, not megawatt hours. The emissionality critique that emissions, not any company's particular emissions, are the proper target for procurement strategies is worth taking seriously. Everyone in the space has wrestled with it. Let's run through a few possible responses and counterarguments. Headline three Industrial policy versus carbon policy. When I talked to Princeton Energy modeler Jesse Jenkins, who contributed to the modeling of 24-7 CFE that we'll look at in our next post, he suggested a helpful analogy to the debate between emissionality and 24-7, the debate between a carbon tax and more sector-specific standards and investments, i.e. industrial policy. A carbon tax is the most economically efficient way to reduce emissions it will go after the cheapest emissions first. But by doing so, it will leave untouched many sectors of the economy that we will eventually need to decarbonize to get to 100% net zero. If we leave them untouched for too long, we'll run into a wall. We need to be thinking about the total solution, says Melissa Lott, research director at the Center on Global Energy Policy. Otherwise, we're going to get halfway down the road, have to take a hard left, and it's going to be painful and expensive. The emissionality versus 24-7 debate takes the same form. An emissionality approach would reduce emissions at a lower per ton cost. It would go after the cheapest reductions first, usually by adding wind and solar to dirty grids. But a 24-7 approach will direct investment toward technologies that fill the gaps left by wind and solar. And there are gaps, says Lot. These gaps aren't 8 or even 100 hours, which can be solved with different battery technologies. They're 8 to 14 days. To cover those gaps will require clean firm generation, many sources of which are still in nascent forms of development. The pursuit of 24-7 CFE will stimulate innovation and growth in the entire suite of technologies needed to smooth out variable renewables. Sources all grids will eventually need, and many already do. California power providers are already putting out solicitations for clean firm projects. In fact, says Brian Janus, Microsoft's Director of Energy and Renewables, even the early talk of 24-7 CFE has gotten people thinking about solutions. We're seeing more and more utilities and more and more energy service providers come to us and say, hey, we think we can solve this problem for you, he says. Companies pursuing 24-7 CFE are undertaking voluntary industrial policy, channeling attention and investment to gaps in current clean energy technology, bringing down the costs so that other companies can use them more easily. That could have impacts well beyond their own emissions. Here's how Jenkins put it to me. Quote, 
The heart of 24-7 carbon-free procurement is the pursuit of transformative impact on electricity systems via accelerated innovation. Think about the indirect emissions impacts from helping accelerate the time to maturity or enable in the first place one or more clean firm technologies or long-duration energy storage technologies that can go on to widespread adoption and make reaching 100% carbon-free electricity easier for the world. Leadership isn't just about doing one's part. It's about making it easier for others to follow. For a company, even one as large as Google, this impact is likely to far outpace any direct emissions reductions they achieve via procurement. End quote. Headline 4. 24-7 CFE needs to be seen in its full context. None of the entities pursuing 24-7 CFE today see their own achievement of 24-7 CFE as the ultimate end goal. The goal is grid decarbonization. We break it into three pillars, says Michael Terrell, Google's Director of Energy. First is transacting, i.e. contracting with developers to ensure Google's own 24-7 supply of CFE. Second is advancing technology both on the demand side and on the supply side, i.e. the industrial policy piece. Lastly is policy and grid decarbonization, i.e. advocating for clean energy policies before state public utility commissions and legislatures to hasten decarbonization of the grids in which it operates. For us, it's not a win if the only way we get to 24-7 in each place is by transacting, he says. We want to get the grids moving in that direction, too. When it comes to the standard way of getting to 100% clean energy, companies can just buy cheap recs from distant grids. They don't need to get involved beyond that. That was a concern of ours, Terrell says. Companies were getting to 100% without having to consider the future of the grids where they were operating or do any policy. In contrast, if a company is trying to cobble together a 24-7 supply of CFE on its local grid, it becomes much more invested in the state of that grid. The more CFE is on the grid, the higher the baseline from which it begins transacting for its own CFE. That will get companies involved in pushing utilities to make clean energy commitments, pushing PUCs to clear away anachronistic regulations, and pushing legislatures to pass clean energy policy. We are trying to drive massive system change well beyond Google, says Terrell. The idea behind 24-7 is you want corporates to have a stake in every grid where they operate. You want them to be banging on the table, driving system change on these grids, getting these grids to carbon-free as fast as possible. Janice says that Microsoft also wrestled with the 24-7 versus emissionality debate as it determined its next steps. Ultimately, we determined that local influence is still important, he says. Our ability to influence PUCs and local utilities and do that worldwide across dozens and dozens of different markets was more important than taking a pure play emissionality approach in any one market. Time will tell how strong that local influence proves to be. What happens if progress on local grids is slow? Lot thinks the pursuit of 24-7 will move forward some tough calls. Entities pursuing 24-7 are going to have to make a decision here in the next few years, she says. Do we keep our data center in this location where we don't see a clear path to 24-7? Or do we move it? Do we shift investment somewhere else? This is going to be an interesting tension that will play out around 2025 and 26. This is an aspect I think critics of 24-7 CFE tend to miss, the social dynamics. If it becomes the new standard for climate-conscious companies and cities, there will be dozens, maybe hundreds of them doing it, spread out across all of America's many balkanized grids. Each will have reason to serve as a local clean energy emissary. Each will be invested in the other's success. One company's PPA boosts the grid mix for every other company on that grid. Companies will be incentivized to pool their resources for greater impact, as many are already doing through the Clean Energy Buyers Association, or CEBA, which organizes and accelerates voluntary clean energy procurement. A telling tidbit, until quite recently, CEBA was REBA, 
but renewables have given way to clean. In short, the movement to 24-7 has the potential to drive social and political change in a way that traditional rec markets never could, and arguably a pure emissionality approach couldn't either. Headline 5. Emissionality can inform a hybrid approach. The choice between 24-7 CFE and emissionality does not have to be a stark either-or. It is possible to use both perspectives for different jobs or to blend them. Take the hourly average versus marginal debate. All of these accounting systems have their advantages, says Terrell. If you're thinking about offsetting the consumption of a large facility, you want to be looking long-term at the 10 to 15-year roadmap of that grid, and average emissions is fine for that, he says. On the other hand, if you're thinking about offsetting the emissions of product supply chains and product use, which are spread out across the country, there are no local consumption concentrations to target, so you might take a marginal approach to seek the cheapest, fastest emission reductions. Put another way, you can use hourly averages to offset your scope 2 emissions and marginal to offset your scope 3 emissions. Microsoft, Janice says, takes emissionality very seriously. Quote, the way I think about it is there are three stages of impact. The first one is attribution. It's just buying recs. Then, five years in, we moved to what we would call additionality. It's not good enough for me to have this attribute. I need to have an attribute tied to something that I actually did. We're now getting into this third era, which is what I would deem consequential. Not only do I need to say that I caused it, I need to be able to demonstrate that I'm materially changing the makeup of carbon on the grid. End quote. With that in mind, he says, Microsoft has developed a hybrid form. By pursuing 24-7, we are going to look at each grid where we operate, and we're going to solve for that, he says. If we can achieve 100% decarbonization of our energy supply across our portfolio, we've demonstrated that you can do it just about anywhere. By virtue of taking that grid-level approach, we are not going to have perfect optimization for emissionality, he says, but we're going to apply emissionality within that grid context. In other words, within the grids containing Microsoft's local loads, Microsoft will purchase the CFE that reduces the maximum emissions. In this hybrid approach, neither 24-7 CFE nor emissionality is perfectly optimized, but both are pushed forward together. We feel like the principle of emissionality is still extraordinarily valuable, Janice says, even when you do it in this hybrid way. Headline 6. Other values could supplement 24-7 as well. Janice, Terrell, and pretty much everyone else I spoke to emphasized that there are other values beyond emission reduction that are important to integrate into procurement decisions as well, most notably environmental justice. Last year, Salesforce released a white paper, More Than a Megawatt, explaining its evolving view on large-scale corporate procurement. It wants to go beyond emissionality to assess potential clean energy projects based on a whole range of criteria, from equity to land use to impacts on wildlife. There are always trade-offs among these metrics, so Salesforce has developed a procurement matrix that will help weigh all these factors and determine which projects best optimize for multiple values. A similar white paper was recently released by Level 10, a carbon measurement firm. Notice that the more of these values enter your procurement matrix, the farther you are from a pure 24-7 play. Instead of optimizing for any single value, you are, as in life generally, trying to balance multiple competing values under time and resource constraints. That can be complicated. It will help if big players like Salesforce create some standardized tools and metrics that make it easier for mid-sized companies to follow suit. Individual companies and cities can decide for themselves how much weight they want to give to 24-7 CFE relative to other values. Today, in the final post in this series, I promise, we're going to look at some new modeling of 24-7 procurement from Princeton's Zero Lab and see if it can shed some light on the trade-offs among different procurement strategies. Then we'll wrap up with some provisional conclusions. Headline 1. The Model 
Zero Lab models three scenarios for voluntary corporate clean energy procurement with 10% participation from the commercial and industrial or CNI sector. No procurement as a baseline, procuring for 100% annual match on a volumetric basis, and procuring for 24-7 match. Each scenario is run in two separate markets, California and the PJM interconnection, an electricity balancing area that covers 13 northeastern states and D.C. Modeling in two markets helps tease out how 24-7 could unfold differently depending on how clean a grid is to begin with. High penetration of variable renewables in California versus a relatively dirty grid in the Northeast. The model is premised on the idea that participating CNI customers aggregate their demand and pool their purchasing power, effectively acting as a miniature balancing authority. This may or may not be how things play out in the real world. Customers could act on their own, disaggregated and uncoordinated. The lab's going to model that kind of scenario soon. Note, the lab did not model a procurement strategy optimized to reduce maximum carbon emissions. Jesse Jenkins, who leads the lab, refuses to use the word emissionality. He insists on carbon-optimized procurement. Don't worry, he'll crack like the rest of us. Modeling carbon-optimized procurement would have been a lot of extra work, and the funder of the research, Google, did not ask or pay them to do it So if you're a wealthy corporate or philanthropy out there reading this, pay the lab to model it. Anyway, let's look at a few of the findings. Headline 2. 24-7 procurement reduces the carbon intensity of a company's energy portfolio. As companies push their CFE scores higher, meaning as they match more and more of their hourly consumption with hourly production of CFE, they reduce the carbon intensity of their portfolio. At a certain level of CFE, they reduce it beyond what they would accomplish with 100% annual matching. Take California. It already has a fairly clean grid. Every company starts with a minimum CFE score of 64%, just by being located there. If a company procures the cheapest clean energy to match 100% of its annual consumption, its CFE score gets to 75%. There are still 25% of hours in which it is drawing on at least some fossil energy. As a company's CFE score rises beyond 75%, the emissions rate of its portfolio falls further, steadily to zero, at a CFE score of 100%. Another note here, you'll see on the graph that instead of one bar showing 24-7 procurement, there are three bars. The red one is current technologies, which means only wind, solar, batteries, and, at least in California, conventional geothermal. The blue bar is advanced technologies, no combustion, including advanced geothermal and nuclear, along with long-duration energy storage. The green bar, Advanced Technologies Full Portfolio, includes all of the above, plus natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, and combustion turbines running on zero-carbon hydrogen fuels. The reason the green bar never fully reaches a zero emissions rate is that there are residual emissions associated with natural gas and CCS. PJM is a different story. It's pretty dirty. Participants there start with a baseline CFE score of just 22%. So a simple strategy of 100% annual matching results in a huge drop in emissions rate, though it only gets participants to a CFE score of 62%. Once again, as participants raise their CFE scores beyond that, the emission rate declines to zero. However, 24-7 procurement does not just reduce participants' own emission rates. Headline 3, 24-7 procurement drives more system-level carbon reductions. In California, if 10% of the CNI sector participates, 24-7 procurement would reduce more system-level, as opposed to participant-level, emissions than a 100% annual matching strategy, starting at a collective CFE score of 88%. 
There are two explanations for this. The first is a volume effect. Participants doing 24-7 procurement simply have to buy more CFE. And with more CFE, more fossil generation is displaced. The second is a timing effect. Participants doing 24-7 matching procure resources that better match demand patterns, thus displacing more fossil generation. Here's PJM. PJM starts out with much less solar and wind. That means that while the volume effect does advantage 24-7, once CFE scores reach 90%, the timing effect isn't very pronounced. The marginal generator is basically always fossil, and the net difference doesn't amount to much. So, 24-7 procurement reduces more system-level emissions than 100% annual matching, but only at relatively high CFE scores and not by a huge amount. Headline 4. 24-7 procurement comes at a relatively steep cost premium. There's no two ways about it. 24-7 procurement costs more, and the costs rise as CFE scores get closer to 100 especially if only current technologies are available. Here's California. Note that covering that last 10%, getting from 90 to 100% CFE, sees costs rapidly escalate, especially for the last 2%. If only commercially available technologies are put to use, 24-7 CFE is 64% more expensive than 100% annual matching. If a full portfolio of technologies is available, it's only 39% more expensive. The current technology costs are easy to explain. It's extremely expensive to cover the last 10% of consumption with only wind-solar batteries and conventional geothermal. But why is the green line, the full portfolio, so much lower than the blue line, which is advanced technologies, no combustion? The difference between the blue and green comes down to which clean firm sources are available. The no-combustion set, long-duration energy storage, advanced geothermal, advanced nuclear, has high fixed costs and low variable costs. Fixed costs are labor and construction. Variable costs are operation and maintenance. But the full portfolio set includes combustion-based sources like natural gas with CCS and turbines running hydrogen fuels, which have lower fixed costs but higher variable costs. And that turns out to be much cheaper when the sources are run at low utilization rates, as these will be. In PJM, the cost differential is even greater. With only currently available technologies, which, remember, do not include geothermal and PJM, the cost of 24-7 procurement is 139% higher than the cost of 100% annual matching. Yikes. But with the full portfolio, 24-7 is only 54% more expensive. In PJM, quote, Procuring clean firm generation or long-duration energy storage technologies can significantly lower marginal abatement costs, particularly at higher CFE scores, end quote. It really helps on a dirty grid to have some clean firm sources that cover that last few percent. Okay, let's pause here and assess what we've learned. We know that 24-7 procurement can reduce and eventually zero out the carbon intensity of a participant's own portfolio, though, of course, from a climate perspective, that's basically irrelevant. In system terms, 24-7 procurement reduces emissions more than 100% annual matching, but only a modest amount, and that modest amount comes at a substantial cost premium. Here, the emissionality perspective taps us on the shoulder. It points out that in either case, 100% or 24-7, companies could reduce more emissions with the same amount of money by directing that money to dirtier grids. Companies are spending extra money to reduce their own emissions when the atmosphere doesn't care whose emissions are whose. Emissionaries, haha, another new word, might ask, what's so great about 24-7 over and above 100% annual matching? Why are the companies procuring for 24-7 willing to spend so much more money for so little additional emission reduction? Why don't they spend that money on dirty grids, where it will reduce more emissions? 
The main answer from proponents is that 24-7 procurement will do more to prepare the way for and reduce the cost of full grid decarbonization. It is playing the long game. Headline 5, 24-7 procurement drives early deployment of clean firm sources. While procuring for 100% annual matching generally means buying only wind and solar, procuring for 24-7 matching will necessarily include, depending on local prices and technology availability, not only batteries, but, quote, conventional and advanced geothermal, advanced nuclear, natural gas power plants with CCS, gas plants using zero-carbon fuels, and or long-duration energy storage, end quote. Here's 24-7 procurement in California with 10% CNI participation in 2030 with current tech, advanced tech with no combustion, and the full portfolio. In the first and second cases, the story is about solar, geothermal, and batteries. But with the full portfolio, geothermal drops out almost entirely, replaced by natural gas with CCS and a few zero-carbon fuel turbines which will be considerably cheaper. This is not likely to be a popular result. I can't say I like it, but it looks like on grids with high penetration of variable renewables that need some low utilization, clean firm generation to fill the gaps, natural gas with CCS may be the cheapest option. Here's PJM. In the current technologies case, it's all about solar and batteries. And as we saw above, it's expensive AF. In the advanced tech no combustion case, advanced nuclear steps in and vastly reduces the total amount of CFE required, thus shaving off a big chunk of the cost. In the full portfolio case, natural gas with CCS once again replaces most other clean firm generation, including nuclear, reducing costs further. Summing up, quote, if 10% of CNI customers participate and reach 100% CFE, 1.9 to 2.3 gigawatts of clean firm generation and long-duration energy storage capacity is deployed in California and 5.9 to 7.1 gigawatts in PJM by 2030. That is a lot, enough to kickstart those markets. Quote, just as 100% annual matching helped transform wind and solar PV from expensive alternative energy sources to mainstream affordable options for the world, the report says, 24-7 procurement is likely to have similar transformative impacts on clean firm resources. Headline 6. What's the right time horizon for voluntary climate policy? So where does this leave us on the debate between 24-7 and emissionality? Should companies reduce their own hour-to-hour emissions, or should they just reduce the most emissions they can, regardless of location and timing? Of course, there's no real reason to pit them against one another. Companies can do one or the other or a mix, depending on their particular values. Nonetheless, it's an intriguing question, and I admit to remaining torn. I frequently argue that post-2030 decarbonization is, if anything, drawing too much attention from policymakers, corporates, and tech types, at least relative to the prime directive of climate policy, rapidly reducing emissions in the coming decade by driving fossil fuel power plants off the grid with cheap wind and solar. That core task is by no means accomplished. Most grids in the U.S. remain much dirtier than California's with plenty of room for more wind and solar. Before they get too excited about advanced nuclear and CCS, everyone needs to make sure that wind and solar are growing fast enough to mostly decarbonize the grid by 2030. I worry that 24-7 procurement is part of this trend. Turning our eyes to the 2040-2050 horizon, the last 10 to 20% of grid decarbonization, before we have the first 80% locked in. That said, I don't worry about that too much. Getting to 24-7 CFE will involve buying plenty of wind and solar along the way. Long-term PPAs will remain the gold standard. Hourly rec trading will be used to fill in the gaps with balancing resources. 
and all the companies pursuing 24-7 procurement will be invested in their local grids building more wind and solar. It raises their CFE baseline. What's more, I think the socio-technical process of stimulating innovation and development in these gap-filling clean energy technologies is going to turn over all kinds of rocks and uncover all kinds of insights. We're still somewhat guessing about which technologies will best play the clean firm role. Reality could surprise us. The sooner we run that investigation, the sooner we'll have a better grasp of exactly what we need and how to craft policy around it. So for now, I remain excited about 24-7 CFE, and I can't wait to see more companies and cities jump on the bandwagon. People are beginning to think about full decarbonization now. The engineers and accountants are running the numbers. We're going to see some really cool stuff happen soon. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.